Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so we are live tonight, and we're in an adult classroom. I'm letting people on Facebook know because our children are doing a class, or not they're doing a class, they're doing a, they're doing a program in the sanctuary for Christmas, and they're practicing. I look good? Okay, don't show me one. Yeah. <laughs> that would be really awkward. <laughs> she points the camera towards me while I'm, while I'm teaching. So, so we're going to finish up Philippians tonight. And um, like I said a few, few minutes ago before a lot of you came in, next week... We'll, in the next couple weeks, we'll do something a little bit different, but we will finish up Philippians tonight. So, I want you guys to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, and if you remember from last week, we talked about, um, do not be anxious, which was kind of, you heard it two weeks in a row, you heard it Wednesday, do not be anxious, you heard it Sunday, do not be anxious, Paul said, think about these things, meditate on these things, put into practice the things that you've learned. Now, at this final section, Paul is going to discuss a lot of issues related to finances and giving and helping the poor and um, being content. So let's begin in chapter 4, and let's begin in verse 10. So here's what Paul writes. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. That now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, how does Paul start verse 10? What word does he use? Rejoice. I rejoiced. Now, what's the main theme of Philippians? Joy. Joy. So here at the very end, he has, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that you revived your concern for me. Now, where is Paul? Paul is in prison. And this is a church that does not have a lot of money. They're not particularly rich. They're actually kind of a poverty-stricken church. But they were very concerned about Paul's welfare. And so they decided to send Paul um, money through Epaphroditus. Now, Paul didn't really need the money. He didn't need the gift. But he accepted it with joy. Now, I wish you had a Bible. Oh, I got a, I got a whiteboard here, but I got a pink marker. You guys okay if I use a pink marker? I got black. You got black? black. You're a teacher. You're always carrying. <laughs> you're always carrying the marker. <laughs> so if you go back to I'm, this is the benefits you don't get when I'm in the sanctuary. I actually do more teaching. So if you go back to chapter, Acts chapter 16, if you remember, Paul went to Philippi, and then he went to Berea. No, I'm sorry. He went to Philippi, then he went to Thessalonica, then he went to Berea, and then eventually he went to Corinth. So 
the, the three or four main churches in Macedonia, when he talks about Macedonia, Philippians, Thessalonica, and Corinth. So 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, all churches in the same geographic area. And so when Paul's talking about Macedonia, he's talking about those churches. So in, I'm going to make sure I advance these slides. I don't want subtitles. Okay. Subtitles aren't currently available. Do you need subtitles for a PowerPoint presentation when you got the words up there? That's what we just hear. All right, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, two particular churches were very much poor. The Philippian church was probably the poorest, and the Thessalonian church. Paul's writing to Corinth, which is a little bit richer, and, and the Corinthians were not practicing financial stewardship. They weren't giving. They weren't contributing as much as they should have been, and they had the means to do so. Philippi and Thessalonica, those two churches that were, were in extreme poverty, they gave out of that affliction in a great joy. And so... Um, Paul is joyful in prison. So here's the question. How can you be joyful in prison? What does Paul say in verse 11? Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be what? Content. Now notice the wording he uses there. I have, what, <coughs> learned how to be content. Is contentment something that comes easy? Or is it something that you learn through experience? Okay? You have to learn it. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency... In all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, the word content and the word sufficiency are the same Greek word. Now, think about that for a moment. What does it mean to be sufficient if, if, if things are sufficient? All sufficiency. You have what you need. You have what you need. And that should lead to contentment. 1 Timothy 6 6, godliness, I gotta pay attention here. <laughs> godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, it would be really nice if contentment was something you could go across the street and buy at Walmart. I'm gonna go down aisle 34 and I'm gonna buy contentment and I'm gonna put it in my back pocket and when I need it, I'll pull it out. Do you go like buy contentment? No. Paul says here, it's something that he's learned. Notice what he says there in verse 12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned, there's that word again, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul has learned through experience to be content, to God, to provide for his needs. Now, 
Let me just ask you a question. Again, you don't have to answer this out loud, especially since it's a small room tonight. Maybe you feel a little more intimidated. I'm not as far away from you. I can look you in the eye and ask the question. Are you content? Are you content with where God has you? Are you content with your finances? Are you content with your job? Are you content with your life situation? Now, that's a hard question to ask because probably for most of us, there's a little bit of discontent, a little bit of angst, a little bit of anxiety. But Paul says this is not something that comes automatically. It's something you learn through experience. Now, what did Paul experience in his life? He kind of briefly mentions it here, being brought low, having plenty, hunger. In 1 Corinthians 4.11, To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. At that present hour when Paul wrote that, he was without clothes, poorly dressed, and homeless. Cite 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 25 to 28. Now this is interesting what happened to Paul. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. What did Paul go through? Anybody here been shipwrecked three times? <laughs> been beaten with rods three times? Been stoned? Remember when Paul was almost left for dead? And they thought he was dead. Back in the book of Acts. He was adrift at sea. He had been homeless. Sleepless nights. Went without food. And Paul says, in all of these circumstances, I've learned to be content. Now, we get to verse 13 which is probably the most famous verse in Philippians. It's the bumper sticker verse. It's the coffee mug verse. It's the t-shirt verse. You, but we got to keep it in context, okay? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, is there a qualifier for all things there? Can you go jump off the building and God will strengthen you to fly? Is that, I mean, is there a qualification for the all things there? What's the context? Don't take this verse out of context. Don't just use it as a bumper sticker that, that's out of context. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. What's the context here? You guys tell me. What has Paul been... What are the verses before it talking about? What's the context? The context is being content. The context is being content. So you can look at this in the context and say, through God's power, in any circumstance I'm in, God can give me the power to be content. He'll strengthen me in that contentment. That word strengthen is used elsewhere. Ephesians 6.10 Finally, brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The Lord will strengthen you. Be strong in his mind. 
2 Timothy 4.17 But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord strengthened me. And then that passage of Scripture where Paul prays for the thorn to be removed from his flesh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, that he said to me, that's Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Notice Paul uses that word contentment there. I'm content because God gives me strength. Then 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Okay, so when do you need God's power the most? When you're feeling discontent. When you're feeling anxious. When you're feeling fearful. When you're thinking about things you have to pay for in life or major decisions in life. All of these things come to mind and Paul says, I've learned to be content. And how did, I, how did he learn that? The Lord gave him strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, let's continue reading. Verses 14 through 20. Yet it was kind. If it gets hot, is it going to get warm in here? Do you think I should open the door? Are y'all getting hot? A little bit. Okay. It's going to be like a sauna in here. And some of you are going to start falling asleep. Yeah. I get hot easily, so. All right, verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 14, it was kind of you to share my trouble. Uh, verse 14 there, Paul uses a very rare Greek word. It means a deep partnership of two people going in the same direction. Okay, where's Paul? Let's keep on remembering. Where's Paul? Paul is in prison. And Paul says, you are sharing in my trouble. Now, they weren't in prison, but they cared enough for Paul to send Paul a financial gift while he was in prison because even though Paul was in prison, they were in Philippi, in Paul's mind, because of the gospel, they were all going in the same direction. They were all going in the same direction. 
And the word trouble there, it was kind of you to share my trouble. It's, it's the word tribulation, really. To share in my tribulation. To share in my imprisonment. To share in my suffering. How often do we share... Well, let me ask it a different way. When another person's suffering, what do we want to do? I don't know if I want to share in your suffering. Go deal with it on your own. I don't, want, I don't have time, I don't have energy to deal with you. Go deal with your problems on your own. That's a, that's a natural tendency. And Paul says, listen, I'm in affliction, I'm in trouble, I'm in prison, this is tribulation, and it was kind of you to share that with me. Now, how did they share it? Now you may think, well, the way they shared it was they sent a financial gift. To Paul. Yes, but ultimately, Paul is saying, regardless of the gift that you sent to me, the fact that you're thinking about me, praying about me, suffering with me, that means so much to me, that we're suffering tribulation together. And nobody wants to suffer. Romans 5, 3-5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Joy in sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance... And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We rejoice in suffering. Paul says, listen, I'm, in, I'm suffering in prison. I'm rejoicing in the fact that you're sharing with me in that. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. Romans 12, 12. There's that word rejoice again. Come on. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Now, what are they doing? Verse 15. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. What's Paul saying? Out of all the churches that I planted in Macedonia... The Corinthians, they didn't financially support me. The Bereans, not our friends across the street. <laughs> the, 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 the Bereans back in the Bible didn't sponsor me. The Thessalonians. In the Thessalonican church, Paul thought that was a great model church. But when it came to financially tithing, giving, stewardship, all the whatever words you want to use, Paul says, listen, Philippians, you're the only church that did this. Now, the reason that you give financially, is ultimately tied to the gospel. Now, what's the gospel? The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins where Jesus saves sinners that don't deserve to be saved. So let's ask the question. In the gospel, did God freely give us Jesus when he didn't have to? What's the, what's the main thing in the gospel? God. What's John 3.16? What's the key verb in there? For God so... Love the world that he gave. Okay, God gave Jesus as a free gift to us. So the gospel is all about generous giving. God is the ultimate generous giver. He gave Jesus so that we could be reconciled to the Father. So when we give back our tithes and offerings to the Lord... Did you ever think of it this way? You're picturing the gospel. Every time you go do online giving, however you do it, write a check, 
send it to the church, put it in the offering, however you do it, you're mirroring what Jesus did. You're being generous because Jesus was generous to you. Jesus gave to you, and you're generously giving back to him. Now, did Jesus, what's a tithe? Not a trick question. What's a tithe? 10%. 10%. Okay, it's not a trick question. Did Jesus tithe his life? No. Did Jesus give 10%? No, he gave all. Okay. Remember that old hymn? Jesus paid it some. No, Jesus paid it all. So if Jesus paid, Jesus paid it all, he freely gave the fullness of himself for us on the cross, held nothing back. And so in giving back to Jesus, he doesn't expect us to give everything back, just a small portion as a way to say thank you. So every time we give, and what Paul's saying here to the Philippians, every time that we give financially, we're picturing the gospel, the freeness, the generosity of God to us. Plus, we're getting ready in a couple weeks to vote on the 2022 church budget. And this may sound cold and calculated, but um, a church needs money to do ministry. How do we keep this building heated? How do we support all the missions that we do and all the evangelistic outreaches that we do and the, and the curriculum that we have and, and all the ministries? We don't have any outside funding source. It's not like there's a, there's a Southern Baptist diocese that gives us money. All the money that is used towards the ministry in this church comes from the people in this church. So we are the ones that um, are to be, to be generous. Okay? So Paul says, Philippians, you're the only ones that help. And notice what he says there. No, back to verse 15. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and giving and receiving except you. Giving and receiving. So Paul reminds the Philippian church that they were the only ones to support him financially. Verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Okay, let's just turn in our Bibles real quick. So jump out of Philippians. This is not in my notes, but we're going to go back and look at this. So go to, go to Acts. And Shawna, you were asking me about studying Acts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did a Sunday morning teaching almost two years in Acts. I think it was like 2010, 2011. You were here. I know that. <laughs> whether, you re whether you remember it or not. Whether I remember it or not. We're not going to read all of that, but just turn to Acts chapter 16. I just want to show you, like, the, the headings, just so you kind of have a, a, a visual picture of the, of the history of where Paul went from city to city to city, so you kind of know what he's talking about here, when he's talking about these Macedonian churches, okay? So, if you look at chapter 16, you see there, like, I have the ESV, these uninspired headings. Maybe you have a different translation, but like right before chapter, uh, verse 6, it says the Macedonian call. Okay, so this is the call. Paul gets the vision of the man, says, come in Macedonia. Remember what I said, Macedonia, those churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, uh, an area, you know, close to Greece. And then you've got the conversion of Lydia. So Paul goes to Philippi first. 
It was the major city. It was a city that was a Roman colony. Remember, we, the first time we studied Philippians, we looked at the conversion of Lydia. We looked at the Philippian jailer. That's how the church was planted. Okay, you go into chapter 17. Okay, so the end of chapter 16, they leave Lydia, the first convert, and they go to Thessalonica. Okay, and Paul spends three weeks in Thessalonica preaching the gospel and teaching, and then he goes to Berea, then he goes to Athens, and then he eventually ends up in Corinth, where he's going to spend the majority of his time, two and a, I think two and a half years. So after Paul leaves Philippi, where does he go? Thessalonica. Now go back to Philippians. Okay, so Paul, I got it written up here, Paul goes from Philippi to Thessalonica, Back to Philippians chapter 4, verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, you, who's you, you Philippians, sent me help for my needs once and again. So even immediately after Paul leaves Philippi and goes to the next city, we don't know how long a time frame it was between Philippi and Thessalonica. What do we know the Philippian church did? They sent him gifts. They sent him gifts financially in the next town that he went. Now, Paul says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul goes to Thessalonica and says, Listen, we're not asking you for money. We're going to work with our own hands. We're going to work for a living. We're not going to be a burden to you. We've come here to preach the gospel. So in other words, this is Paul's tent-making, bivocational. I'm not receiving funds for the ministry. He's a church planner. And he says to the Thessalonians, we didn't receive a dime from you. We worked with our own hands. But Paul is reminding the Philippians, hey, even though when I was in, Philippi, when I was in Thessalonica and I wasn't receiving money from the Thessalonians, you were so kind to send me money. And then 2 Thessalonians 3.8 Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now, during all of this, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, probably what was most painful for Paul was that none of the other churches helped him financially. You gotta ask the question, why? Why only one church helped? Was it that Paul didn't teach the same thing to all the churches? I'm only gonna teach financial giving to the Philippians, but I'm not gonna teach it to the Thessalonians. I'm not gonna teach it to the Corinthians. You think Paul's message was consistent with the gospel? So the issue was not Paul didn't teach the churches these things. The issue was these churches had a heart problem. The Corinthian church... And the Thessalonian church did not have the heart of giving the way the Philippian church did. Now, I want you to notice how carefully Paul words this word of rebuke here. He's kind of rebuking the other churches when he's talking to the Philippians. And, and Paul will often do that. These churches are in close geographic area. And so I'm sure there were people that visited you know, the different churches in that geographic area. But notice what Paul says there. They had not shared in both giving and receiving. What were the other churches good at? 
Well, we're receiving Paul's ministry. We're receiving Paul's teaching. We're receiving Paul's ministry. He's a great pastor. He's a great church planner. Great teaching from Paul. We're receiving all this ministry from Paul. They were good at receiving. What were they not good at? Giving back. Giving back. And yet the Philippian church, in a spirit of joy, in a spirit of maturity, is the only church that gives, and it brings joy to Paul's heart. And then in verse 17, he's like, I don't, I'm not seeking a gift. Paul's like, I don't really need the money. What am I going to do with the money in jail anyway? I mean, it's not like Paul necessarily needs the money. But he does not want them to miss out on the opportunity to give. Paul could have said, don't give, I don't need the money. But Paul says, listen, I don't need the money, but the point is, you gave. And notice what he says here. Not that I seek the gift, verse 17, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. The fruit that increases to their credit. In other words, what they're doing is, is in their financial giving, they're practicing good biblical stewardship. They are being fruitful in their obedience. And Paul's like, I don't want you to miss out on the blessing of giving. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a blessing to you to give. You're going to get the fruit from that. Now, this is not name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, prosperity gospel type stuff. But, but the Bible does teach that when you practice consistent biblical giving, tithing, stewardship, there is a fruit of blessing that God brings in your life. It may not be materially, it may be spiritually, but God does bless, bless giving. Now look at verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Notice he says, I've received full payment and more. I've received full payment and more. They've been very generous. They've given above and beyond what he expected. I've gotten more than enough. I'm well supplied. Epaphroditus, you sent him with the gift. He brought it to me. I was really surprised at how much you gave. It was above and beyond. And Paul uses Old Testament imagery. What does he say about their sacrifice? It was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Does that remind you of the Old Testament? The sacrifices that rose up to God, the fragrant. And so what he's saying here is that you guys in your obedience and in your generosity, it's really a fragrant offering going up to the Lord because you're being so obedient in your giving. You're, being, you're giving a sacrifice that brings glory to the Lord, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And we see this language in Romans 12, 1, not just talking about financial giving, but your entire life. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your bodies as a sacrifice. Live your entire life as a fragrant offering to the Lord, obedient, sacrifice, serving Him, glorifying Him. And so what Paul is saying here in this Philippians passage is that when we practice financial stewardship through faithful giving, we are in fact offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God. We're doing His will. In other words, I, I can't say it any plainer than this. When you practice financial giving to the Lord, 
It pleases God. It's a fragrant offering to the Lord. Now, verse 19 is a great promise because remember this church is poor. They're in extreme poverty. They gave above and they gave above and beyond what they had to give. They were generous, they were fruitful, they were joyful. And so probably they're they're probably like a little worried at this point. Man, we've given a lot of money. Like I preached on Sunday. I got some anxiety here. Let's look at verse 19. My God will supply every selfish want of yours. Is that what your Bible says? No. What does it say? My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's a good verse just to have as a promise. God will supply every need of yours. Every need. Consider the ravens that never that don't toil or work. And God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the ravens? Consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. And look at, they're, they're arrayed more glorious than Solomon in all of his splendor. And the Lord clothes them as grass and birds that die. O you of little faith. Don't be anxious. God will supply every need of yours. Remember Luke 12, 32. Anybody remember that from Sunday? I've been meditating on it. Little flock, fear not. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God the Father will give you the kingdom. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. So at this point, you're like, oh my goodness, I did not want to show up on a Wednesday night and hear about tithing and giving and finance. The last thing I wanted to hear. I'm going to close the door so you can't leave. Okay? <laughs> so, no. <laughs> let's, turn to first, let's turn to 2 Corinthians. I wanted to share with you some principles, seven principles about giving. And I want you to see that these come directly from the Bible not from Pastor Sean's opinion. These are principles that come from the Bible. But you need to know them. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 5 through 8. You're by there? Um, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So Paul's collecting funds for the church in Jerusalem. He wants to come. They promise to give it. Paul's like, I'm not requiring this of you. You're giving it, to, you're giving it freely. And so let's look at these principles. So verse, verse 6 and following. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. All right. 
seven principles of giving from this passage of scripture. And there's nothing magical about seven. It's just a good biblical number. And there's seven of them there. Okay. The first is the principle of reaping and sowing. Look at verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly. Okay, let me tell you that the ESV translates. They may have a different word besides sparingly. Uh, the original, the actual Greek word there is grudgingly or begrudgingly. You're, you're, you're begrudgingly giving your money and you're, you're kind of being stingy. The word bountifully in the Greek means over and above. So if you sow grudgingly, stingily, you're going to not reap much. But if you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. Now, this is not the prosperity gospel. This is not sow your seed to Pastor Sean's ministry so he can get his jumbo jet so I don't have to fly coach on Southwest and I can fly across the world to have these mass crusades and blow on people with my anointing so that they can be healed. That's not what we're talking about here. Okay? There are a lot of hucksters out there that try to get you to sow a seed to their ministry and, and they abuse this. But this is a biblical principle. There is... Can I close that? Because I think the youth are singing. They're singing Christmas songs. Which, we'll, 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 here, I'll do this. I'll open this door. How about that? I guess it doesn't matter. We got two doors on each side. So, so there is a biblical principle about generosity. I, I shared this a few weeks ago, and I'll share it again. So when I was not a youth pastor, when I was early in our marriage, Don and I got into a lot of financial trouble. We racked up a bunch of credit cards. It was one of those things where, you know, you walk, this is back when you went to the mall, you know, like those days when you would go to a mall. No. We'd go to a mall and like, I want that. I want that. We can't afford that. Let's sign up for a credit card. Sure. Get a clothing store credit card. Get this credit card. Get a Best Buy credit card. Put everything on credit. And so the next thing you know, like three years into our marriage, we're in major credit debt. It's like, whoa, what's going on here? And so we had to go through credit counseling to get out of debt early in our marriage. Okay, so I was working at a job. Um, and I was working um, two jobs. And Don was working one job. This was before Aiden was born. So we, we were working three jobs. We were in major debt. And we were not... We were not giving to our church. I mean, I would write a check maybe about every six months because I felt kind of guilty because my dad was a pastor. And I'm sure he probably knew, you know, that his son wasn't. I don't know if my dad looked that he was giving, but, my, you know, my dad was a church planner, so okay. So kind of gave here and there, always had financial problems, always dealing with stuff. Um, then became a youth pastor and said, okay, I'm, I'm on staff at a church now. I better start being serious about, about giving. So quit those two jobs down to one job, youth pastor. Dawn quit her job to be a stay-at-home mom with Aiden. So down from three jobs to one job. What are, what are you thinking? How are you going to make ends meet? Okay, we started practicing weekly financial giving to the church and for some strange reason, I'm not going to say it was overnight, 
our finances turned around miraculously and the Lord began to bless us and we had better situation with one income when we practiced tithing than when we had three when we didn't. Okay, so you could say I was reaping sparingly and I was sowing sparingly. But then when I began to sow bountifully, the Lord took care of us. So again, it's not a health, wealth, prosperity thing, but there is a biblical principle that when you become faithful to giving to the Lord, I can't explain it, but He always somehow manages to bless you. And I can't stress enough, you don't know it until you start doing it. I can tell you about it, but you can't experience it until you do it. And the problem is a lot of people don't want to start because like, how do I start? Because I'm fearful. The point is, sometimes you just got to bite the bullet and start. Okay. And so here's number two. Giving has to be... Sorry, I'm behind on the slides here. Giving has to be an individual choice from the heart. Notice what he says there in verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Now, I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek here, because that word decided there, it's in a verb tense that means you've made the decision, and you're going to stick with the decision. I've made the decision, and I'm going to stick with the decision. It's between you and the Lord. In other words, it's a deliberate decision that you stick with that comes from your heart. I've said this ever since I've been the pastor of Emmanuel. I cannot force you to give. I cannot make you give. I can't do that. It has to be from your heart and your individual decision. But once the Lord does that in your heart, you make the decision and you stick with that decision. Okay, number three. Giving is not to be reluctant. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly. <laughs> that word reluctant means this. Out of great sorrow or emotional suffering. It's causing me great emotional pain to give. That's kind of what it's talking about. It's not, it's not like this reluctance. It's not causing you emotional suffering. It's not a distress for you to give. It should be a natural outflow of your joy in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 9, 2, if you go back up there, I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since the last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Zeal. So where we get the word, it's the Greek word zealous, where we get the word zealous, it means enthusiasm. You're giving with enthusiasm. Number four, giving is not to be under compulsion. Again, I can't make you give. There must be a willingness here, a readiness. We can't force you to give. Not under compulsion. And again, Paul addresses the issue of equal sacrifice, not 
necessarily the dollar amount. I mean, all of us are going to have different ways that God has blessed us. We're only responsible for giving out of what we have, what we don't have. So it's not like, don't get hung up on the dollar amount. It's more what God has blessed you with. Are you blessing him back with a heart that's ready, that's not reluctant, that's not sorrowful, but that's joyful? And then number five, Paul just says flat out, God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Our attitude is what counts, not necessarily the dollar amount. At first, when you begin to start giving, it can be a little painful. It's kind of painful. Just back in the day to write, we still write a check to the church. I know a lot of you give online. Um, and that's, that's fine. That's probably a better way to do it. Um, but there's something joyful about knowing that you're, you're being obedient to the Lord. You're doing it with cheerful. Now, you may think, okay, if I do all this, what's going to happen? Is it going to cost me? Am I going to be out of, out of, you know, am I going to be having a hard time making ends meet? What's going to happen here? Well, notice what Paul promises there. Look at verse 8. God will provide for all your needs. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. Having all sufficiency. You know what that word sufficiency is there? Mm -hmm. The Greek word we looked at, contentment. God will provide for your needs. God will give you contentment. God will provide. Now you may think, well, where's the seventh? There's six. Well, look at the seventh. That you may abound in every good work. God blesses so that we can be a blessing to others. Why do you give? Well, first of all, to be obedient to the Lord, but you're able to be a blessing to others. You're able to abound in every good work. You're able to bless others, to be generous to others, to further the work of the gospel. Okay? So those are seven principles of giving. Now let's go back to Philippians. Are there any questions at this point? We may finish really early tonight, but that's okay. The time is... Yes, go ahead. So in my... I, I, I don't know if this quote is necessarily verbatim here, but uh, in, in the, my Mere Christianity book by C.S. Lewis, he gives a quote that says something to the effect of, he often finds himself having desires that nothing in the world can satisfy. So the only logical answer is he was made for another world. Yep. So I, I think kind of what he's saying there is that effectively he'll never be content in this world. So how do you think that would, would fit into Paul's message? Um, yeah, what C.S. Lewis is saying there is that there is such a thing as a holy, I mean H-O-L-Y, a holy discontentment in the sense that, yes, in this world, we're never going to be fully at home because this is not our true home. Okay. But what he's saying there is, because I've been made for another world, when I, find those, when I find those desires rising up inside me, if I'm quoting C.S. Lewis correctly, what, what he's saying is, and this is kind of what Jonathan Edwards and others, a lot of the Puritans would say, is that 
You were made for a relationship with Christ. And so here on this earth and even in heaven, the only person that can truly satisfy the longing, the desire, the purpose is Jesus. Okay. So your contentment comes in Christ. Okay. Here on earth, never fully realize until you get to heaven that your goal on earth is to get as close to Christ as you can. Here's what John Owen, he's a, he's a great writer from the 1600s. He wrote a book that's been really, really influential on me, um, on, on Christ. And I'll paraphrase him. He said something like this, talking about himself. He said, I want to know Jesus so much here on earth that when I get to heaven, he's not a stranger. Now, obviously when we get to heaven, Jesus is not going to be a stranger. But his point is this. I want to know Jesus so much on earth right now. His point is, don't wait to get to heaven to cultivate that relationship with Jesus. Cultivate it now. Seek his face now. Find satisfaction in Christ now. He's the only one that can fill that discontent. So am I answering your question, Andrew? Yes. Okay. I'm glad I was able to answer your question. Yes, Kevin. Uh, you mentioned that the Philippians were the only ones... Uh, early phases that really got engaged mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if there's something maybe something contextually that happened uh, I'm wondering if their hearts were stirred more because of certain things yeah, is there any well there's really no indication as to why the some like there's no indication in the text as to why the Philippians gave and the other churches didn't okay. Okay, in the text mm -hmm. what I can say is this the Philippian church maybe understood the gospel experientially more than the other churches did. In other words, they all had the same knowledge, but it hadn't gone to their heart the way it went to the Philippian church's heart. To where they understood the freeness of the gospel and Jesus dying for them, and they, that impacted them so much. See, here's the thing, Okay. This is the frustrating thing as a pastor. Not frustrating. I shouldn't say that. Um, I'll say it. Frustrating. Um, a church, in an ideal church, a pastor should not have to stand up on a Sunday and said, hey, we need you to give. I shouldn't have to say that. And the question is why? Why shouldn't I have to say that? I shouldn't have to stand up and say, you guys really need to evangelize in an ideal church. I shouldn't have to stand up. You guys should be using your spiritual gifts. You really should be loving one another. I really shouldn't have to stand up and tell you to do stuff. Okay, now I understand this is, this is not the real world. Okay, But here's the point. If Jesus and the gospel was so important in your life, that would be enough to motivate you to do it. Because you are you love Christ so much. And so, yes, pastors are there to motivate because we have sin, we have blind spots, and my job is to encourage and to maybe sometimes admonish, and we have that role as pastor. But in an ideal world, because of God's love for you, that should be enough motivation for you to serve, for you to give, for you to evangelize, for you to live for Christ um, in an ideal world. But the problem is, what's, what's the problem? We don't let the gospel truly impact our thinking in our heart. 
We're so preoccupied with other things. Which leads me to the end here. Look at verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's really kind of how he ends the letter. Everything goes back to the glory of God. God's glory. Now you may say, okay, we're done. Well, you get to the end of the book and say, okay, final greetings. We'll just kind of skip over this. We're not going to skip over this. Because I think it's important how Paul ends it and how he began the book. So let's go to the final greetings. Verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's the very last thing Paul wants them to know. The grace of God be with your spirit. The very last thing Paul wants them to know is grace. So let's ask the question. What is grace? Well, I've been in church my whole life. I know what grace is. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E, right? <laughs> you guys remember that little? <laughs> Which is true. God's riches at Christ's expense. Let me give you two definitions. One is by a Dutch theologian, Herman Bavink. Herman Bavink. Ascribe to God, grace is his voluntary, unrestrained, unmerited favor toward guilty sinners granting them justification in life instead of the penalty of sin which they deserved. I love the adjectives. Voluntary, unrestrained, unmerited. Unrestrained. God holds nothing back in giving you his grace. It's unmerited. You don't deserve it. J.I. Packer defines it this way. The grace of God is love freely shown toward guilty sinners, contrary to their merit, and indeed, in defiance of other merit, it is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to accept anything but severity. Okay, so let's talk about, we're going to talk about grace tonight as we close up shop on Philippians. Grace. To understand grace, this is the way Paul ends Philippians, we need to understand four great biblical truths. You will not understand grace unless you understand these truths. And this is just straight gospel. Okay, these are, like if you're going to share the gospel with somebody, this may be a good little gospel presentation. Okay? Number one, the sinfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin. That's a weird way of putting it, right? Is sin sinful? The sinfulness of sin. Okay, I'm going to show with you, I'm going to show with you, I'm going to show with you, I'm going to show you Psalm 32, 1 through 2, after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed, he was guilty and he penned a psalm when the Lord forgave him. Two, but we'll look at, there's one Psalm 51, and then there's also Psalm 32. But I want to show you three Hebrew words that he uses for sin. So Psalm 32, 2, Blessed is the one whose transgression 
is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whom spirit there is no deceit. So transgression, sin, iniquity. Three different Hebrew words to describe sin. So the first word is transgression. This means a breaking loose or a tearing away from God, going your own way, rebelling. This means that you could care less about God and you're going to do your own thing. I'm going to rebel. I'm going to cut loose. I don't like God's rules. I don't like God's authority. I'm doing my own thing. Thank you very much, God. I'm going to just spit in the face of my creator. That's what the word transgression means. A willful rebellion. Okay? Second Hebrew word, sin. This means a deviation or going wayward or falling short or missing the mark or turning from the right path. It was used, and you probably heard this before, it was used to describe how archers would shoot arrows and totally miss the target. It's like you're not even close to God's standard. You're way off target. No matter how hard you try, here's, here's God's standard, here's the bullseye, here's, here's the target here, you know, archery. And you're not, even, you're not hitting bullseye. Like you're shooting way off in the North 40 over here. You're not even hitting anything. You're, you're not even hitting anything close. And then the third word is iniquity. This focuses more on our condition. The word, the word means perversion, distortion, being twisted, corrupt, a criminal with no respect for God. This describes sin as our condition. We're depraved. We sin because we're first sinners. Out of a depraved heart come individual acts of sin. So we are held accountable not only for our nature as sinners, but also for our actions. Get that. You're not just committing sins that deserve penalty. You're committing sins because fundamentally you are a sinner. Those sins come from your nature as a sinner. So because you're perverted, you're corrupt, you're depraved, you want to go your own way, you want to rebel, you fall short. That's the way the Bible describes sin. Now, if that is what we are, we're born that way, if we go our own way, if we're corrupt to the core, if we're sinful, then the question becomes, okay, what do we deserve? And this is the second truth. In order to understand grace, you have to understand sin. But number two, we have to understand God's wrath. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath remains now, what does that mean, the wrath remains? What does that assume? You're all, you were under wrath, and now you're continuing to be under wrath. The ra- you were always under wrath. The only way you come out from being under God's wrath is if you believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, God's wrath remains on you. Now, let's ask the question, what's God's wrath? It's not his rage. It's not like God had a bad hair day and he's throwing lightning bolts down from heaven, because... It's not where you put two infants in a corner and give them one toy and say, fight it out. That's, that's infantile wrath. 
It's a settled opposition to sin where God has to punish sin. Now, one, one faulty definition of grace is this. A lot of people will say grace is it's unmerited favor. It's for undeserving sinners. Un, you're undeserving. But that's not necessarily true. Undeserving means that you're neutral, that, that you don't deserve anything. What do you actually deserve? Hell. Hell-deserving or ill-deserving. It's not that we simply don't deserve grace. It's that we deserve hell. So it's not just unmerited or undeserving. It's that we're actually, we, it's not like that we don't deserve, like we don't deserve grace, but we do deserve hell. Okay? So, sin renders us corrupt, going our own way, guilty before God. God has to express his wrath against our sin. He has to punish that sin. We're not neutral, but we deserve hell. Now, number three, we've got to understand our spiritual inability. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Okay, no one can come. Does it say no one may come, or no one what? What, what can't you do? What can't you do? What, use the biblical language. What can you not do? Come. What does come mean? Have Faith, believe in Jesus. That Greek word for can't or cannot, it's the Greek word dunamis. You can maybe see the word dynamite in there. It really means this. You don't have the power in and of yourself to come unless God does something to you. So you have to ask the question, why can't I come? Why can't I come? Well, God has to draw you, but why does God have to draw you? Why does God have to do a work in you? Why can't you come? Well, I'm glad you asked, because we're going to look at Ephesians. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. You're right there in Philippians, so turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Everybody there? And you were what? What? Dead. Dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of what? This what? World. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay, who's the prince of the power of the air? Okay. I'm writing these down because there's, there's, there's five of them. Among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So what were you enslaved to? Your flesh. Carrying out your lusts, 
And how does he round it out? And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay. Why can't we come? Well, Paul gives five descriptions here. You're dead. Spiritually dead. He doesn't say you're spiritually sick. You're half asleep. You're dead. You're spiritually dead. If you're spiritually dead, what has to happen? If you're dead, you're dead. Spiritually. Okay, you're influenced by this world. The world has you in its mold. The world is what you're in love with. And you're influenced by Satan. You're following Satan. You're following in his path of disobedience. And you're enslaved to your own flesh and your own lusts. And you're by nature. By nature. That word by nature means that's the way you're born. You're already born under God's wrath. You're born guilty. So, no one can come to Jesus because every single person without Jesus is spiritually dead. You're enslaved to the world. You're enslaved to Satan. You're enslaved to your flesh. And you're by nature born under God's wrath. And that renders you unable to do anything to save yourself. Bad, bad news. Okay. What's, what are we talking about here tonight? Grace. Why is grace necessary? If you were going, to, if anything's going to happen to get you out of this, let's ask the question: Can you get yourself out of this? No. No matter how hard you try, no matter how spiritual you are, no matter how good you think you are, you can't get yourself out of this. What do you need? You need grace. So, let's finally get to grace here. Sin, God's wrath. You're spiritually dead and unable. But let's go to number four. God's sovereign freedom to grant grace. Now let's keep going in Ephesians there. Paul gives five descriptions of a spiritually dead person without Jesus. But how does verse four start? What's the first word in verse four? But. But who? But God. This was true of you in your state without Jesus, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did God do? God made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. So let's ask Paul based upon Ephesians. Paul, what's grace? Grace is God making you alive when you were spiritually dead and a child of wrath. Did you make yourself alive? No. God made me alive. Did God have to make me alive? No. God chose to make me alive. Was God obligated to give you grace? No. God freely gave me grace. Grace ceases to be grace if it's something God's obligated to give you. God's obligated to give it to you. It's not grace. It's something he owes you. And what does God owe you? Hell. And when you have God's grace and you're made alive, Paul says elsewhere in Romans 5, 
1 and 2, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When you've been saved by grace, you have peace with God, you rejoice in the hope of God, you stand in this grace, you're made spiritually alive, God makes you alive. And so Paul ends Philippians with this whole reminder of God's grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Remember God's grace. So what is the big idea in Philippians? So we're at the end of the road here. And I'm glad you've stayed with me on this journey. What's the big idea in the book of Philippians? Well, let's just let's just succinctly wrap these up. God started a great work of salvation in us and will be faithful to complete it. Remember Philippians 1:6, I am what? I'm sure that he who began a good work in me will complete it at the day of Christ. So God started salvation. He will complete it. As citizens of heaven, we find ultimate joy when we partner with others by walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Remember 129? Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. As we passionately pursue Christ together, we are unified, joyful, prayerful, and content. And then lastly, we rejoice in sharing both our lives and our resources with each other for the glory of God and the power that Christ supplies. In other words, what I say was the theme of, of Philippians? We find joy in the gospel. The gospel of grace. Of which we need to be reminded every day of grace, of the gospel, of joy. Joy only comes in the gospel. Joy only comes when we understand grace, and we're meant to experience it together. Not in isolation, but together as God's people, walking side by side, arm in arm together, unified as God's people. All right, that concludes everything I have to give you from the book of Philippians. Are there any final questions or comments or observations? I think we got about, what, 10, 15, 10 minutes left, 15 minutes left? Well, you know, after you wrote those on the board, and we were talking about contentment earlier, like, if you're if you're in the world, you know, you're never going to find contentment. Oh, no. Because of all, you know, because of that. And yeah. people that do, you know, are, are, that are of the world, you know, they try to find that contentment in other, you know, in other ways. Yeah, you're, that's a good point. If you're not saved, you're never going to be content because you're finding it in the wrong places. It's like that old song, I've been looking for love in all the wrong places. You're looking for contentment in all the wrong places. <laughs> Sorry. That brings way back to the Wayback Machine. Urban Cowboy soundtrack. Um, any other thoughts? Can you pray for God to give us somebody else grace? Can you pray for what now? Can you pray to God to give somebody else grace? Yes. Can you pray for God to give somebody else grace? Yes. I think Paul gives examples of us praying for other people for God's grace to abound in their life. Now, is this a believer? Are you asking for praying for somebody's salvation? Or are you praying for a Christian to have more grace? A believer. A believer, too. So you're asking 
Can you pray for another believer to understand and experience more of God's grace? Yes. I think you have freedom to pray that. Now, if they're a Christian, they've already experienced God's grace, but they may not fully understand what it means to live in that grace and to fully know the peace and joy that comes from that grace. And you can be saved and not... You can be saved and know that you're saved and know you're going to heaven and know you've been forgiven, but still not fully understand what it means to have the peace and grace and, and all the things of the Lord. It's kind of a growing process. Is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah, I think you should pray for that. I'm just wondering if, um, you know, I, I haven't studied it like you have, but I'm looking in Acts 16, uh, and Joseph, uh, Philippi, and he, he went through some hardship there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if there was a synagogue there. But there was not a synagogue in Philippi, and that's because he went down the river and found the women, Lyd- Lydia. Right, and they went to, he went to their home, right? And I'm wondering if there was this relationship went into the prison too. Remember that in the prison? I mean, what did they do in there? There's some They're singing. amazing scenes. And I think these people got to see the real power of Christ in his life. When he went to Thessalonica, the, the Jews in the synagogue were like arguing with him, weren't they? Yeah. Well, let's think back to how Philippians was started. They experienced God's grace powerfully from the very beginning. Lydia's heart was opened. Yeah. Remember a little slave girl that was the python spirit girl that was walking around? She got saved, and then the Philippian jailer got saved. So there was some powerful working of God in overcoming demonic oppression, overcoming prison, doing this work. And so from the very beginning, it could have just been a special situation with Philippi. From the very beginning, yeah. they saw that grace powerfully. Now, the Thessalonians, Paul was there three weeks, and he had to skedaddle out of town because they were looking for him and so they came and ransacked Jason's house and he had to leave and so you know each church had us under God's providence had a different way of getting started but it could be that the Philippian church understood that because from the very beginning the way it was planted there was powerful gospel demonstration from the very beginning and they got it from the very beginning and they didn't get over it problem is when you get over being saved when it becomes humdrum. Don't ever get over the fact that God saved you. You didn't have to. Always thinking. You guys ready to fall asleep in this hot room? Danae's like, yeah. <laughs> Any final thoughts? I'm gonna I'm gonna close this in a word of prayer. And then um, I think. Let me give you a preview for next week. I think I want to dive into a deep topic and go back to one of the attributes of God. Remember how we started the fall with attributes of God and I took a break from that and went back to Philippians? I think I want to talk about the foreknowledge and the omniscience of God and that whole issue of... I'm thinking about that, but I may change my mind on that. That will be a deep subject. So we'll go dive into the well of a deep subject. Or I may change my mind and come with something really lighthearted. So, all right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, thank you for the book of Philippians. It's been a joy, as that's the theme of the book, to go through it. We've learned so much. It's probably going to take a while to digest everything we've learned. 
Help us just to, to be people that never get over the fact that you've saved us by grace. You didn't have to save us. We were hell-bound. We were dead spiritually. We were children of wrath. But Jesus, because of your great love, you died for us. And, and you, you, Father, you, you made us alive through the Holy Spirit. And you gave us new life. And we now stand in grace. We're now free. We're now forgiven. Help us to be content and help us to be generous. And we ask this in Jesus' name.